Hi, this is Ron Fierstein, the author of Edwin Land, Polaroid, and the Kodak Patent War, and you're listening to IP Fridays. Hello, and welcome to this episode of IP Fridays. Our names are Ken Suzanne and Rolf Clayson, and this is the podcast dedicated to intellectual property. It does not matter where you are from, in-house or private practice, novice or expert, We will help you stay up to date with current topics in the fields of trademarks, patents, design and copyright, discover useful tools, and much more. Welcome to episode 51 of IP Fridays. Today we have an interview with Ron Fierstein, who is the author of A Triumph of Genius, a book about the biggest patent infringement case in US history until last year, and uh, about one of the most important inventors in US history, Edwin Land. But before we jump into the interview, I want to tell you a little bit about the new EU trademark and some statistics from WIPO. WIPO just uh, published some statistics on the applications in 2015. They received a total number of 218,000 PCT patent applications. That was a growth of 1.7%. Most PCT patent applications came from the US with 57,000 or a little more. Um, Then there comes Japan, China and Germany and um, the Republic of Korea and so on. Um, The top applicants uh, are and they are led by far by Huawei Technologies with about 3,898 PCT applications. Unbelievable number. Um, The next um, frequent applicant was Qualcomm with um, 2,442 PCT applications. Then there comes another Chinese company, ZTE. And the remaining applicants uh, in the top 10 have between 1,600 and 1,300 patent applications. Uh, And they include Samsung Electronics, Mitsubishi Electric, Ericsson, LG Electronics, Sony, Philips Electronics and Hewlett Packard. Another thing that happened last week was uh, the opening of the EU Intellectual Property Office, formerly known as the Office for Harmonization in the Internal Market. They had shut down all their online activities on the 22nd of March and they reopened with a new name and new branding on the 23rd of March 2016. So head over to their website, just in Google, just type in EUIPO and then you will find it immediately. Along with a name change uh, came a lot of procedural uh, amendments and uh, fee changes. Uh, If you want a full overview, I have made a longer uh, YouTube video about this. You can watch the video at 3w.ipfridays.com slash EUIPO 3w.ipfridays.com slash EUIPO So let's head into the exciting interview of today. 
I'm very excited to be joined by Ron Fierstein today. If you don't know who Ron is, uh, he has been an attorney in his earlier life in patent litigation and has been in the entertainment industry ever since. He has worked with songwriters like Susan Vega, Sean Colvin, Mary Chapin Carpenter, and others, and he's currently um, working together with his brother Harvey Fierstein, uh, who has penned uh, hits in, and musicals like Torch Song Trilogy or Hairspray on Newsies. And recently, Ron has authored a book called A Triumph of Genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid and the Kodak Patent War. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Ralph. So uh, tell me more about Edwin Land. Well, you know, Edwin Land is one of, the, one of America's greatest inventors and technology entrepreneurs that pretty much, pretty much no one has ever heard of. It was a very peculiar thing given uh, what he accomplished in his life, which was a very much a 20th century life. And um, as a young lawyer, I uh, was involved in a patent uh, litigation in America between Polaroid and Kodak, two of the great camera companies in American history. Um, it was a patent litigation over instant photography technology, which is something that Edwin Land and his company Polaroid pioneered. Um, and I have to admit, when I first got involved in the case, I didn't know who Edwin Land was. I had a Polaroid camera, and I knew that on the camera it said Polaroid Land camera. But I assumed that Land referred to the ground and that somehow they were distinguishing this camera from an aerial camera or an underwater camera or something. I had no idea that Land was the gentleman who had pioneered the technology. But long story short, the more I learned about this fellow, the more I became intrigued about him, uh, everything he had accomplished, and uh, the more um, confounded I became that he was not more well-known. And so uh, when I retired uh, uh, from the music industry uh, several years ago, I decided uh, to pick up this item off of my personal bucket list, as they say, and to write a book that told his story as well as the story of this uh, historic litigation. Right. And you say that um, actually the relationship between Polaroid and Kodak began as a friendship, right? If I understood you correctly. Well, exactly. And that's what I try to uh, portray. You know, the book is not written exclusively for lawyers. It's really written for the general nonfiction reader. And I really try to get behind the story of the litigation. Uh, this is not so much a, you know, blow by blow detail um, of the of the in a very technical way of the legal aspects, but the greater story, the grander story over decades of the relationship between these two great companies. When um, when Polaroid first started out uh, back in the 1930s, uh, it had nothing to do with photography, actually, because Land's first discovery was the thin plastic polarizer. Um, you know, scientists had known about the phenomenon of polarization, which is the ability of some materials to take the glare at a bright light uh, for hundreds of years, literally since the 16th century. But uh, the only materials people were aware of that could do this were big pieces of rock, crystals, and the like. No one had come up with a practical material that could polarize light, despite the fact that everyone could think of a million uses for such a material. Well, Edwin Land, at the age of 19, in the 1920s, solved that problem and uh, came up with a thin piece of plastic 
that could polarize light. He was able to embed in that plastic tiny microscopic crystals and array them in a certain particular way that performed the function of, uh, of polarization and took the bright light out of uh, uh, took the glare out of bright light. Well. One of the first, he dropped out of Harvard at that time, much like Steve Jobs and, uh, and, uh, and other great inventors, uh, dropped out of college, started his company, and the first customer he had was Eastman Kodak because they bought this material and made camera lenses out of it. And that was the start of a relationship that lasted for decades. And so in the beginning, really, uh, uh, Eastman Kodak was Polaroid's mentor, if you will. Uh, when Land started his experiments in photography, all the materials he used in those experiments he got from his friends at Kodak. And even when Polaroid put out its first instant photographic product, it was Kodak who manufactured the negatives for every single Polaroid film beginning in the 1940s, lasting well into the 1970s. Um, so it, it was really a mentor-protege relationship um, that over the decades turned into one of arch enemies and ended up with both companies in federal court in Boston uh, fighting over the technology of instant photography. So how, that, uh, how did that uh, happen, that they became basically arch enemies uh, out of their first friendly relationship? <clears throat> Well, you know, in the early days, um, Kodak looked at Polaroid as a bit of, a, you know, a, not a joke exactly, but a, as a company with a very limited niche market, you know, um, it, taking instant photographs, which means, you know, you slap the shutter and then you see the picture immediately. Um, some of your listeners will remember that back in the day when you, uh, in conventional photography, if you took a roll of film uh, pictures with a conventional camera, it could take weeks, literally, before you'd get to see the pictures. Well, Land came up with instant photography, or what he called one-step photography, where you'd snap the shutter and see the image within uh, a minute or two. And... Uh, It was expensive, um, and it required a little bit of work on the photographer's part. They had the the, uh, the early embodiments. You had to time it. You had to peel apart the positive from the negative. You had to maybe mount it on a piece of cardboard to keep it flat and so on. Well, um, Kodak you know, was happy to be, uh, to have Polaroid as a customer and to manufacture negatives, but they never saw Polaroid as a challenge. Well, all of this changed radically in 1968 when Land showed Kodak, uh, the prototype for what became known as the SX-70, uh, camera and film. Um, SX-70, which a product Polaroid ultimately put out in 1972, was the first film that emerged from the camera and the phot photographer needed to do nothing else to it except hold it in his or her hand and watch it develop right in front of your eyes. There was no peeling apart. There was no timing. There was no coating it with a print, with a solution to preserve the print. Nothing. You just, it, it came shooting out of the camera. You held it in your hand and you watched it develop. Well, This was a radical leap in that technology, um, and when and Land went to Kodak and asked them to help manufacture the film for that new product as well. Well, Kodak took a hard look at that, and for the first time, sensed that Polaroid might have a product that could somehow impact Kodak's dominance of the amateur photography market around the world. And so Kodak went back to Polaroid and said, "You know what? We'll help you with this new film." 
but only if you let us manufacture some and sell it in our trademark yellow boxes. Well, uh, that was something Polaroid could not abide. Um, We were still, even though Polaroid was a big company at the time, by then um, it was still David and Goliath. Um, Polaroid was never larger than one-eighth the size of Eastman Kodak. And uh, Polaroid really didn't think it could compete, and and they couldn't accept those terms, and Kodak wouldn't back down. And so it's uh, both companies, after a long protracted litigation, uh, not litigation, um, negotiation, uh, the two companies went their separate ways. Polaroid went off to learn how to make negatives for the first time, and Kodak went off to develop a competing system. Mm-hmm. And then this turned out into um, the biggest patent infringement case uh, until last year, but uh, for a long time, the biggest patent case. Can you give our listeners an idea like how big that case was? Like many of our listeners do not have anything to do with patents and some are not in the US. Um, how many attorneys were there on each side and what was the value of the case? Like, uh, can you give us an idea? Sure. Well, the case, the case re- went on from beginning to end for 15 years. Whoa. Started in 1976, and the final award of damages was not settled until 1991. Um, at the, I worked, it was bifurcated into two parts. First was the liability part to determine whether Kodak had infringed Polaroid patents when it came out with a competing system in 1976. And then once that was determined, there was a whole separate litigation over the damages. Now, um, in the, the liability phase that I worked on, I mean, we had at times 15 lawyers on the case. And, you know, you have to remember this. These were the days uh, before computers. And so there were huge support staffs that went with this um, because documents nowadays, if you have a large litigation Uh, a company might produce a million documents, but they're all going to be on a thumb drive. You know, you just hand it over to your opponent. Well, back in those days, we didn't have thumb drives. And so they were literally boxes and boxes of papers that were delivered. And so managing the documents, supporting the lawyers with, you know, uh, secretaries who typed and retyped and retyped everything from motion papers to, to out, you know, uh, questioning outlines, um, It was a huge, huge undertaking uh, by both companies and very expensive uh, litigation that that lasted for a long time. And the case uh, went through, particularly in America, you know, the the discovery phase um, uh, is can be very extensive and very expensive, and it it really becomes a struggle between the plaintiff who wants to get to trial as soon as possible, and the defendant who wants to drag things out as much as possible. And uh, that very much was the story in this case, with Kodak dragging its feet about getting to trial and Polaroid trying to push uh, the process along as quickly as possible. Uh, by the end, uh, at the end of the trial, the trial was held in 1981 uh, for on the on the litigations, uh, the liability side, and uh, the decision came down um, three years later. It took the judge three years to come out with the decision, but the decision held that Kodak had in fact uh, infringed Polaroid's patents, and the most at that point, the most significant part of the decision was the fact that. The Polaroid side was able to get immediate injunctive relief. 
Polaroid, uh, even before the appeal of the liability decision was heard or decided, um, Kodak was enjoined from further infringement, which meant that Kodak literally had to take all of its cameras and film out of the stores and destroy them. Mm. And it created, it was an ama- uh, uh, just a remarkably historic result and made an incredible impact. I mean, there's a lot in my book about just people, uh, you know, you had 13 million Americans who had po- these Kodak instant cameras who were left high and dry because they could no longer buy film for them. And uh, it was amazing. And uh, then later, as I said, there was a, 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 a trial on the damages, and the court awarded almost $1 billion in damages. Uh, the final, uh, there was bickering back and forth over appeal, not to appeal. The, the final amount paid was about $951 million uh, by Kodak to Polaroid. And that was in 1991, and it remained the largest uh, satisfied judgment from a patent lawsuit uh, in history until 2015 when there was a case in America over a blood vessel graft patent. Uh, the case was called Bard v. Gore, um, which had just over – just by a couple of hundred thousand dollars – uh, more of a damage award, just over a billion dollars affirmed by the federal courts. So it really was a historic case and a historic result. But what made it most interesting is what we, we discussed earlier, which were the personalities involved and the long history of these companies and, and how, it, how the, 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 the controversy, how the relationship changed and, and, and they found themselves in court at the end of, of a 60-year relationship. Right. And um, I mean, besides this uh, really interesting uh, case, I mean, for, for people like me, I'm, I'm a patent attorney, um, there's also another aspect uh, to the life of Edwin Land. He has served as a, as a role model for many leaders in today's world. Um, and uh, one of them especially... Um, You mentioned him in the book. Um, can you tell us more about a very famous um, leader in today's IT uh, who, who helped build a lot of today's IT infrastructure today? <laughs> sure. Well, uh, you're, you're referring to Steve Jobs, the right. founder of Apple. And uh, Steve Jobs admitted that uh, Edwin Land was his idol. And uh, Steve Jobs... Uh, modeled much of his career after Edwin Land. Um, uh, there's no doubt about it. If you, you study, and I go into this a bit in the epilogue in my book, uh, but they were two of a kind. Um, they both dropped out of college and, and founded and led virtually single-handedly glamorous technology companies. Uh, um, back in the day, Edwin Land used to introduce his new products at shareholders meetings uh, with great publicity and fanfare. Uh, a technique that uh, Steve Jobs copied exactly uh, back uh, later on. Um, they both built companies with uh, talented engineers and researchers and a unique corporate culture uh, that encouraged creativity. And uh, um, they both really had a tremendous aesthetic sense, um, um, really demanding that their products look and feel and operate a certain way as well as perform the functions they were intended to. Um, you know, Steve Jobs called Edwin Land a national treasure and mm. uh, really did model his career after him. 
You say in your book that um, Steve Jobs uh, confessed uh, to a reporter that uh, meeting land was like visiting a shrine. Exactly. <laughs> well, it was. I mean, it, you know, there were just so many, you know, philosophically, for example, you know, um, in 1972, when Polaroid put out this SX-70 camera and film that I alluded to, um, reporters asked Edwin Land, well, you know, how much market research did you do before you committed $500 million? Now, again, this is 1960s $500 million. So this would be what, five, six, seven billion dollars Right. So they're asking him, well, how, how much market research did you do before committing that much money of your company's profits to developing this new product, this revolutionary new product? And Edwin Land turned to them and said, none. We don't do market research. We give people <laughs> products they can't even imagine. Well, does that sound familiar to anyone who's heard uh, Steve Jobs talk? Because he, he, when asked the same question, he gave exactly the same answer, one he had inherited from his, his idol and his mentor, Edwin Land. Um, and to this day, you know, recently I heard a, uh, an interview with Steve Cook, uh, with Tim Cook, who is the, new, uh, the current CEO of Apple. And he was talking about uh, one of Apple's new products, I forget which, I think it was the, the watch. And, uh, and Tim Cook said exactly the same thing, that Apple's whole role in life is to give you something you didn't know you wanted. Mm. So, and but there's also a big difference in the life of Land uh, compared to the life of Steve Jobs. Um, I think Land worked for the U.S. military for a long time. Can you tell us more about that uh, well, part of his life? Well, that's the amazing thing. As I said at the very beginning, you know that the more I learned about Land's life, the more um, I was just amazed by you know what he had uh, done during uh, what he had done during his life, and one of the biggest surprises was the fact that um, he was sucked into the American intelligence community uh, before World War II. Um, you know, uh, he was a young man in his 30s when he really got uh, achieved great fame because of this polarizer invention. And uh, because everybody was walking around with Polaroid sunglasses and, and camera filters and so on and so forth. Well, in America, there were a group of very elite scientists, particularly at MIT and Harvard, who uh, were working with President Roosevelt. Um, and they advised Rose President Roosevelt that in World War I, America apparently had not used uh, its technological resources to the full in terms of uh, fighting that war. And they didn't want to make the same mistake because although, you know, uh, uh, publicly uh, Roosevelt was resisting America's entrance into uh, uh, any kind of war that might be on the horizon, um, most people realized it was inevitable. And so these scientists went to FDR and they said, listen, we don't want to make the same mistake. Let us put together an elite group that can marshal the resources of American academia as well as industry to help fight this coming war. And, they, and Roosevelt said, great idea. They put this thing together. Uh, they called it originally the National Defense Research Committee. And Land, even though he was still in his 30s, was drafted onto this group. And he ended up serving seven American presidents over the decade, the coming decades um, uh, in terms of advising them on scientific matters and how uh, American technology could uh, be used both for the military and uh, for intelligence. And one of the great stories is, uh, and I recount all this in the book, um, 
after World War uh, II, in the early 50s, uh, when General Eisenhower had become president, he called this small group together. And yeah, so yeah, imagine five or six scientists sitting in the Oval Office with uh, President Eisenhower. And he and at this point, you know, Land was uh, was maybe forty years old. Uh, I, I think he was probably around forty-two years old at this point. Still a young man compared to the others in this group. Well, Eisenhower says to them, "You know, I'm really nervous about the Russians. I don't know what they're up to." And Land steps forward and says, "Well, why don't we take a look?" And the long and short of it is that out of that came the U-2 spy plane which many of you listeners may recall, uh, America uh, began flying in the 50s and uh, it did surveillance over Russia and later on became important in the Cuban Missile Crisis. But, um, and, and you also may remember those of your listeners who saw the Bridge of Spies movie that really recently came out. Well, that in part was about Francis Gary Powers, the American pilot, flying one of those U-2 spy planes who was shot down over Russia and was eventually, uh, as told, in that story in the Bridge of Spies uh, traded for a, a Russian spy that was discovered in America. Right. Um, I think Edwin Land, uh, and as you told me before, of course, uh, is one of the most important inventors uh, in U.S. history, um, but is not very much known. Uh, why do you think that is? Well, I think uh, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, he obviously operated in a time when media was not the media we all know now. I mean, now everything is, you know, it's all about the media now. You know, the, back then, in the, in, he started in the 30s and really his career en uh, ended in the 80s. But um, we didn't have the kind of media that we have now. Also, he wasn't a great self-promoter. I mean, he could be a showman when he was put in that position, i.e. when uh, he was on stage in front of his shareholders making one of those demonstrations. But generally speaking, he was reclusive. He was a bit of a loner. And there was also a component of secrecy about him that stemmed from all of this secret work that he was doing for the American government. Um, I, I quote uh, one of his colleagues in that work uh, in the book saying how, you know, uh, his life changed because he, uh, security immediately became a concern for him because they all knew that the Russians, for example, would have been delighted to grab him, you know. And so uh, he stayed out of the limelight. He appeared only when he needed to, uh, all very orchestrated and really was never much of a self-promoter. Right. Um, in the very beginning, I said that you just wrote this book, um, A Triumph of Genius, Edwin Land, Polaroid, and the Kodak Patent War. Um, where could people, people find out more about you and the book? Well, uh, there's a website, just triumphofgenius.com, triumphofgenius, all one word, .com, where you can read much more about the book. I've been... Um, Lucky enough to get some wonderful reviews and, and, and articles written about it. And so you can check it all out there. And uh, the book itself is available through all of your usual uh, outlets, whether it's uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble uh, here in America or uh, whatever. Uh, hopefully some of your local bookstores, although if they don't have it in stock, I'm sure they can order it. Uh, right. So, um, thank you very much for being on the show. It has been a fantastic interview, and I learned a lot about uh, Edwin Land. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, thank you for being on the show.
Ralph, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this episode. If you liked what you heard, please show us your love by visiting ipfridays.com slash love and tweet a link to this show. We would be so grateful if you would do that. It would help us out to get the word out. Also, please subscribe to our podcast at ipfridays.com or on iTunes or Stitcher.com. If you have a question or want to be featured in one of the upcoming episodes, please send us your feedback at ipfridays.com feedback. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to ipfridays.com iTunes and it will take you right to the correct page on iTunes. If you want to get mentioned on this podcast or even have comments within the next episode, please leave us your voicemail at ipfridays.com slash voicemail. You have been listening to an episode of IP Fridays. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by their respective law firms. None of the content should be considered legal advice. The IP Fridays podcast should not be construed as legal advice or legal opinion on any specific facts or circumstances. The contents of this podcast are intended for general informational purposes only, and you are urged to consult your own lawyer on any specific legal questions. As always, consult a lawyer or patent or trademark attorney. Copyright 2014. All rights reserved.